0: Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f- gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.
1: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Before we get into the episode today, I wanted to reach out and thank Halyard1964 for a review he wrote in iTunes. I've asked <laughs> you guys to write reviews because the more reviews I get, the more likelihood I'm going to get new listeners. And I guess that's the way I gauge the success of this podcast is if I'm having an impact on people's lives. So I'm looking for new listeners. Well, anyway, Halliard1964 wrote, The Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast is chock full of interesting stories and useful information for anyone interested in sailing and cruising. Franz does a fantastic job in bringing interesting people into your ears and getting them to talk about sailing adventures, tips, and techniques maintaining and restoring provisioning and much much more he also has a deep store of knowledge from years spent sailing in the Mediterranean and shares his own adventures in exotic locations over the past year I've listened to every podcast Franz has put out and I can't say that there was one that I didn't enjoy they are perfect for taking you away from the daily commute or the dreaded house and yard work Halliard, I really appreciate you writing it it means a lot to me I read every review So thank you so much. And I would encourage my listeners, if you haven't written a review, to go into iTunes and and write a quick review. I'd appreciate it. I will read it, and I will make a note on one of my podcasts thanking you. All right, before we get on to this episode, let me make my quick advertisement. If you are studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, or if you just want to learn to sail, the best place to learn to sail is out on a boat, But before you get out on a boat, let me encourage that you learn the terminology and some of the basic safety procedures on a sailboat. And for this, I've produced an audio series of lessons. You have to get up to the ASA 104 to be able to go out and and charter a boat. So this is the first prerequisite if you want to get to that stage. If you just want to get on a boat and know the terminology on a boat, the ASA 101 series of lessons is the one I would recommend. If you found that useful and you want to move on to the next level of instruction, go to the ASA 103 and then the ASA 104 series of lessons that I put out. Now these are audio lessons. I'm an audio guy. I enjoy listening to books on tape, but you get the same information in books, so you might want to just go to your library and check out a book and read it. But I try to pepper my lessons with personal anecdotes that drive home the concepts I'm trying to teach, and I think it helps people remember that way. Anyway, if you're interested, the lessons are at the website medsailor.com. I would prefer that you buy them from the website. I get more money uh, that way. If you buy it in iTunes and Amazon, the amount I actually get in my pocket is substantially reduced. If you buy it at the website, you'll go to a service called Gumroad, which will allow you to download the MP3 files. And also Gumroad has an app where you can log in and listen to it just like you would any music that's stored in the cloud. So with that out of the way, let's get on to today's interview. Today I'm talking to Vinnie Gallagher. Vinny Gallagher has a YouTube channel called Sailing Nervous. He was recommended to me by Jack Andrews, one of my listeners and friends. Jack suggested I contact Vinny and and interview him and talk about his journey from being a dreamer to actually going through and making an offer on a sailboat. So thanks for joining me, Vinny.
0: That's great to be here. Thanks.
1: First of all, tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel and how you started out looking at sailboats.
0: Well, I started the channel uh, last January, not really expecting much to come from it. Kind of more like a little online journal for myself just to kind of chart my uh, experience of searching for sailboats and trying to learn about the different types of sailboats, fin keel or full keel uh, with the different sailboats, our strengths and weaknesses. And so I would post a weekly video of my journey going down on the Chesapeake Bay to look at the different sailboats that I had been researching and I guess after a few months, the channel just really started to take off. And, and now we have 6,000 subscribers, and one of the videos uh, has about 60,000 uh, viewers. So I didn't expect it to uh, take off like that, but uh, it's been great. It's really developed into a nice sailing community, and we get lots of good feedback and comments and you know, i have built relationships and have met new people, new friends, new sailors. So, so it's been great.
1: Do you have a companion website that goes along with it?
0: You know, I don't just have the, uh, the YouTube channel sailing nervous.
1: So the reason you decided to start this was just to document your journey from starting to look at boats and, and, and to the, I guess you just announced a couple days ago, your offer was accepted.
0: Yeah, we're excited. it, it, you know, buying a sailboat, uh, there's a lot involved and I wanted to make sure that I understood, you know, uh, did my research and uh, wanted to find the best boat that was, uh, you know, uh, the best combination for my wife and I because uh, our plan is to live as liveaboards, and I just, you know, really needed to get the right boat. So it took me a while because I didn't have any any knowledge when I first started out. I did own one sailboat years ago, but it was a small 14-foot West White Potter.
1: Well, start us down the path. Take a step-by-step of your journey. Even though you've documented it on YouTube, people can go there and get more details but tell us, about, tell us about how you started. When did you decide you wanted to become sailors and what led you to that decision?
0: Well, in 2006, uh, we moved to South Florida after living most of our life, you know, in uh, Pennsylvania. And also we, I went to grad school with my wife in Colorado and born, we're I'm originally from New York City. Uh, so once I was exposed to, you know, the... Uh, green water and the palm trees and I began to you know want to get out on the water and I met a friend who had a 60-foot Pearson and he was a live aboard full-time and he spent six months off of Martha's Vineyard off of Massachusetts and six months off of uh, West Palm Beach doing uh, charters and I became friends with him and began to hang out with him and he took me out sailing and I just absolutely fell in love and got the sailing bug well, we had to move back to Pennsylvania when the economy crashed in 2008. I graduated law school 2009 as a kind of mid-career change. I had been a, a therapist for years and also a pastor. And uh, we moved back to Pennsylvania. I did not want to move back up here. I don't like the cold weather. And once we were up here, you know, I just really kind of got depressed and started longing for the warm waters. And I just thought, you know, I got to... I got to get out of debt. I got to buy a boat, and I got to get back down and cruise and live aboard and go into the tropics. Uh, that's our our goal: is to sail in the trop between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer.
1: Now, was your wife on board all along the way?
0: No, not initially. She uh, loves the uh, farming and area in this part of the country, and she was not. However, uh, we've been married for thirty years, and she loves me a lot and what she was interested in was as i said we really got hit bad with the recession in 2008 we lost all of our our savings and she, we had to get back into debt uh, to have a home for our family and so she really wants wanted to get out of debt and it was kind of a win-win situation i wanted to live get the live-aboard lifestyle uh, sell the house and work for a while out of the boat to pay off the rest of our debt and she also wants to get out of debt and uh, she's taken uh, sailing lessons, American Sailing Association, uh, basic keelboat sailing 101, and as it turns out, she does like it. And so she's got motivation to do it. We enjoy being together, so it's been wonderful. Uh, the two of us are in unity and agreement, and that's kind of a evidently a bit of a rare thing, but I'm happy and, and very grateful that uh, she's so flexible. She's just a great person, and she's a good sailor. She's, she's brave,
1: what what did i hear one time somebody said the first animal creeping from the sea was a female
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well we'll see what's going to happen but i've been encouraged so far
1: well all right so you've decided for for and for her motivation is she wants to basically be debt free i gather and, and yes be debt free by buying a boat and not necessarily buying a house
0: or a farm correct and uh we're just about to face the empty nest syndrome we had three children our oldest is 25 the next is 21 and our 18 year old will be leaving for college uh and so we wanted to get the boat keep it in the Chesapeake learn how to operate it that's going to be lots of episodes of me <laughs> i'm not exactly very mechanical and i'm going to have to learn uh, a lot of things it should be entertaining to say the least to watch the sailing nervous we're both uh you know <laughs> appropriately scared uh and you know, I, also, I watched a show one time uh, by an English mariner who traveled the world, and I was encouraged because he said, you know, don't let anybody fool you. You know, it is scary uh, out in the ocean. And uh, so we are sailing nervous, and I think that's why the channel is so popular, because people can relate, sailors can relate to some of the fears. And I believe in uh, overcoming the fears because Emerson is the quote we use, which is, uh, whatever you fear, uh, you should go ahead and do.
1: So are you a practicing attorney right now then?
0: Yes, I'm a family attorney. I have my own law practice. And uh, yes, and I am not thrilled with it. And uh, I'm looking forward to a different lifestyle.
1: So what are your plans on supporting your lifestyle when you're out there living aboard? Do you have any thoughts on that yet?
0: Uh, yeah, we are in a process where the first thing is to get out of debt. And we are going to keep the boat uh, moored in the Northern Chesapeake for a, a while to get out of the rest of our debt. We have st- student loan debt that has to be paid off, and uh, so once we're debt free, you know, because of my age, we do have uh, a nest egg, and so we're going to try to live off that nest egg a little bit and try to figure out how to. Uh, that's why I didn't, you know, buy a boat that was a super super expensive boat. So we're we're kind of looking into what are, what it's really going to cost, and uh, by being out of debt and by drawing on some of the the nest egg, as well as, uh, you know, doing some things online uh, where I'm confident that we'll be able to at least get going. <laughs> How long we can keep going, that remains to be seen. but it's always one step at a time. So I'm here looking at your
1: YouTube channel and looking at all the episodes, and, and here on episode four, you have full keel versus fin keel. Tell me your thought process when you were going through that decision.
0: Well, I had always heard, in all my reading, because I've been reading about sailboats, you know, for years, I'd always heard the traditional wisdom was a heavy boat, heavy displacement with a full keel, and that was going to be the safest boat to be out in the ocean with. But as, And so initially I just started looking at full keel boats only. But then I was exposed to a friend of mine who's a moderator at SailNet, which is a sailing forum, and he's been sailing for 50 years. He's an architect. And he began to tell me, listen, that's the old wisdom because when you have a full, full keel and you're in the ocean, it's not the, it's not the depth of the keel based on the fast net tragedies and all of the research that's been done on you know being in a storm. It's the length of the water line. It's not about the displacement or even the type of keel. So I began to understand safety issues are not about having a big, heavy tank in the middle of the ocean because, you know, the forces of nature are so great that even the heavy thing that you think is a heavy tank means nothing to Mother Nature. Uh, and all of the studies show that survival at sea, crossing an ocean, is based on the length at the waterline. Uh, obviously, the longer, you know, 30-foot length of waterline uh, or longer is just safer, and that's what the research has shown. So it kind of changed my mindset about it. Also, the fin keel, the more modern fin keel designs, uh, they are faster, and that can be also a safety issue. They're easier to run because you need less sail area, which can also be a safety issue if you're coming up, uh, have the wind push against you, a lee shore, and you got to get out or you got to get out over waves. So, we have several videos with Jeff Halpern uh, interviewing him and that's been one of the things that uh, our viewers have liked a lot because it's sailing science and technology. So I kind of changed my my mindset, uh, and the, as it turned out, the boat that we got is a fin keel, which is an English-made Moody thirty-four.
1: Now, is that a full is that a modified full keel or is that a full fin keel boat?
0: You know, I think it's a modified fin keel. Uh, it's not as narrow as some. Fin keels can be, but I would say I guess technically it's a modified fin keel.
1: And does it have wings at the bottom? Just out of curiosity.
0: No, it does not. It's a, got a five foot keel. It's a you know five foot uh, draft, and it's just a straight straight down. And the rudder is a uh, not a spade runner. The spade runners are just like not supported, uh, and in a grounding they can be damaged easily. A post hung rudder or a skeg hung hung rudder is a rudder that's got some support. Connected to the hull, and uh, this one is a i believe it 's a post hung rudder, but it 's not a spade runner, which is also good the, the, so I like the underbody and uh you know this is not to say that a full keel boat you know is not better it's you know a lot of it 's what you feel comfortable in, and you know it 's like anything there 's lots of different opinions because uh, it maybe is not such an exact science as some people would say
1: no it 's not an exact science, and to each his own. I see a lot of Moody's where I sail in the Mediterranean. I see them all the time, and they're usually handled by couples that are that are, that are out there living the dreams. In my opinion, you probably made a pretty good choice based on what I'm seeing out there in the Med right now.
0: Well, it'll be interesting, yeah. And we—I've never—I've never sailed it, <laughs> so it's all going to be a full learning experience. Uh, one of the reasons we liked it was. Because uh, it has a rear stateroom, so there's privacy, you can shut the door, and then the V-berth is big enough, also with doors, and also the main salon is nice. And the center cockpit is big, and it's just it, more livable. Uh, a lot of, For a 34-foot sailboat, it is, it's surprisingly you know, uh, livable. The other boats that we looked at in the same size is more like one big room. And that's great, but I don't think we could live in it with two people because there are times when you want to be alone, when you want to watch uh, something or read alone, and to have those kind of three rooms or three compartments in a 34-foot sailboat, you know, is really a a unique thing. So we were—I looked at a ton of sailboats. Those of you that watch the channel, you have looked—you know, all of the—you know, all of the the great-made boats. They're all wonderful, but uh, I just kept going back to that Moody 34.
1: So do you do you remember what your initial sailboat list was? You have a YouTube video on your sailboat list. Do you remember what you had in that?
0: Yeah, they originally uh, I did want a full keel or a modified full keel. Uh, you know, I guess my perfect sailboat at that time would have been uh, maybe an Island Packet thirty-five that has the modified full keel and is very roomy inside. Uh, I also looked at uh, you know Pacific Seacraft. I, I, I wanted some I, a West. Uh, a a a a west West sail you know 42 or a 32 was to me the perfect you know heavy heavy uh, you know type of boat and that's really what I was initially looking for and a lot of the early almost all the early episodes are those type of modified uh, full full keel boats and it wasn't until I met Jeff Halpern and then actually went sailing with him on a 38-foot boat that he was going over 10 knots uh, and it was roomy enough to live. And I thought, what is this? this? I've never heard of I've never been on such a fast sailboat. And he explained to me, uh, you know, the mechanics of it, the science of it. So uh, although I'm not a racer, I, it did change my mind about, uh, you know, fin keel or modified fin keel. Because before I was very much like, oh, the full keel is the only safe boat to, to go coastal cruising uh, or to cross and make a passage.
1: So is your intention then to move uh, onto the boat and live there until you're ready to take off?
0: Yeah, the the goal is to uh, first our house is uh, on the market. So the first goal is to learn how to sail the boat. You know, uh, That's going to be just probably six months of sailing episodes of setting the anchor, taking out for its first sail, me and my wife Amy learning how to run it ourselves, uh, lots of unknowns. I mean, I've, I've taken ASA 101, 102, 103, but it's completely different to take sailing lessons with an accomplished captain and then to actually have your own boat to work it out you know, and learn how to operate that particular boat. So that's going to be a while. I mean, you know, we're, I, I need to be able to operate that boat. We also have to learn about maintaining the engine and all the things of maintenance required to learn our systems, electrical systems, uh, anything that needs to be fixed or modified, we'll be doing that. Uh, and then when the house sells, we'll be moving on to it and working still here in the Delaware Valley to continue to get out of debt. And as soon as we get out of the debt, the sooner the better. In my mind, we're going to untie the lines and head south.
1: You have an episode here on finding a liveaboard marina. How hard is that now? Is it, is it difficult or is it fairly easy?
0: You know, I was surprised. A lot of marinas don't advertise that they're liveaboards. But if you go in and they see your face... And they like you, uh, you come in with a partner that looks nice. Uh, they're like, Yeah, you can be a live here, but they don't necessarily advertise it uh, because uh, maybe some person comes in that uh, they don't like the way they look. Uh, and so maybe it's not a live aboard marina uh, for, for that person. So the owners have that discretion. Uh, I was surprised, you know, there were several that I found uh, in the northern reaches of the Chesapeake Bay, which is a, dr- a short drive from the Delaware Valley, which is, you know, the area that we're currently working in. Uh, and there are more closer down to Annapolis and Baltimore. And uh, so, you know, ultimately we'll be doing a lot more anchoring. But as far as to have a base to work, yeah, we found one particular one that uh, looks great in Havre de Grace, Maryland.
1: Just out of curiosity, what, what is it going to cost you to moor your boat per month at the marina you're looking at?
0: Uh, I would say instead of me paying $2,000 a month for my mortgage and my homeowner's fee and my sewer and utilities, it's going to be more like $300 a month, which includes electricity, you know, water, sewer, the whole thing. So it's dramatically cheaper than if you have a a mortgage, if you're living, you know, uh, obviously, if your mortgage is paid off, you don't have a mortgage, you know, it's, uh, you know. Easier, Or if you're used to apartment living, you don't pay that much, then maybe it's not such a good deal. But for someone like me that has an expensive uh, mortgage and a homeowners and all the things that are required to, you know, maintain this kind of a property, it's great. Can't wait to sell it. And that'll be a major 80% of the debt will be re- reduced just by doing that. Well,
1: and when, if once you have a house, you've got property tax. And my property tax alone would about amount to $300 a month.
0: So <laughs> Right, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely.
1: So you've got an episode in here: How to persuade your wife, husband, or partner. You've already talked about that. I'm sort of just going through the episodes and picking out subjects that I think our listeners would like to learn more about, and you can explain it to them, and then they can go to your YouTube channel and take a look at it. Boat loans, boat loans. Did you, uh, did you, did you end up getting a boat loan? Or are you paying off your boat straight, straight with cash? How are you going to go about financing your boat,
0: or is it cash? Uh, it's going to be a combination of both. We, I had initially just looked to see what their rates were for financing and looked at a couple different uh, financing companies. And then uh, when we got closer, I went to my, my bank and said, you know, if I wanted to borrow this and started the process of that, their rate was a lot less. And so uh, I think it's probably going to be – I'm still actually kind of deciding because I have about three weeks before the closing. I'm going to I'm, – I'm, I can do all of it financing or I can do – Half of it or part of it, and then the other part cash. So I'm really not sure yet how I'm gonna, you know, what combination I want. But uh, you know, I do have perfect credit. That's the one thing. Even though we got really hammered in that uh, economic downturn, uh, we had always paid our bills on time, and you know, credit's important. And so, yeah, I, I have the money to, to, to do with it with, what I want.
1: What did you end up paying for your boat? If you don't mind me asking, or do you want to keep that private?
0: No, that's not private. The we offered forty. Thousand and it was accepted at forty thousand. We next week on the twenty eighth, we're going to have an engine survey. We're going to have a regular sur- survey of the all systems of the boat, and then we're going to have a sea trial. And if there's anything that I don't like, uh, as long as it's done by I think the tenth of February, a certain date, then I can say you know what, I don't want the boat, or uh, you know this is the survey came back and look there's you know. worth of repairs, you know, lower the price or I don't have to buy the boat. Um, So that's what's great about the system of buying a boat is, you know, it's contingent upon your satisfaction with a boat and indoor engine survey.
1: Did you engage a a salesperson to help you find the boat or did you go online to find your boat?
0: Yeah, no, I just went online and looked at uh, Yacht World and uh, also sailboat listings and uh, for sale by owners, just kind of, you know, And I was specifically, I mean, I've looked everywhere from the Great Lakes to New England uh, to Canada to the Keys, and I've looked at boats even, you know, not in person but not in the nation. And what I decided was the best thing for me to do since there were so many boats I needed to look at was just focus on the ones that are in the Chesapeake Bay because – You know, that's only an hour, two hours, three hours, maybe four hours for the southern reaches of me to get to. Uh, So it was pretty much just looking for boats in the Chesapeake Bay. And there's plenty of them there for sale that gives you a good sampling of, uh, you know, what's out there. Annapolis, Maryland is a major sailing hub. uh, And so we're fortunate to, you know, live close enough to it to take advantage of all the resources for sailors there.
1: So you've got an episode on boating laws. Is that the basic the rules of the road, or is that more in, in line with other areas of,
0: of maritime law? Uh, actually, the first episode on boating law has to do with something that people are surprised about. The Fourth Amendment uh, protects us from unreasonable search and seizures. What does that mean? It means that when you're driving down the road... A cop just can't stop you because he doesn't like the color of your car. You've got to be swerving or maybe you don't have your inspection sticker. He's got to have what's called probable cause. Once he has probable cause, he can pull you over. But even then, he can't say, hey, open up your trunk. I want to see what's in there. No, that's an unreasonable. He would have to get a warrant and, and, and a probable cause to do so. So those are protections that the founding fathers wrote in uh, for us to be protected against, you know, the tyranny of, you know, a government that can do whatever they want. However, most people don't realize and are shocked to find out that on navigable waters, which is any bay or inlet that connects to the ocean, the Fourth Amendment does not apply to us. Thus, the federal government, as as represented by the Coast Guard, they will board our vessel whether we give permission or not or whether we're doing anything wrong or not. Uh, they're going to come on board, and they don't need probable cause to inspect us for safety uh, flares or the different things that, that the boat's properly registered. And they can also arrest us if they want uh, without probable cause. So that federal power is not uh, covered under the Fourth Amendment on navigable waters. So that was a surprise to you then? Well, not for me because I knew that from my law school days, but for my viewers uh, got a, you know some would respond say yeah well that's right you know we've got to protect that's the federal government it's like the navy they're protecting against you know smugglers and or terrorists or that's appropriate then we had a lot of other folks with different political views that were like well this is complete tyranny this is not right oh my gosh I'm not even going to go into I had one writer, writer say I'm not even going to go into voting now now that I know that the federal government is you know in so tyrannical over the seas you know so yeah a lot of people were surprised because uh, we're not used to being uh, approached by the police if we 're not doing anything wrong, so
1: have you ever been aboard a boat that has been boarded by the Coast Guard?
0: No, but my buddy who was the liveaboard down in Florida, he told me one night he got a bang bang banging on his hull and he was mad because you know who it was and he came out uh, and he may have you know grabbed his shotgun because he didn 't know if he was you know if there was trouble someone trying to rip you know do something break into his boat and there was a coast guard with fellow would be one guy behind a machine gun, the other with the bright searchlight, and they said, prepare to be boarded. And he didn't know that the law was, and I don't know if he gave him a hard time, but they boarded him, and they, you know, uh, found, you know, looked for what they were looking for and checked out his safety stuff, and they left, but boy, uh, he was mad. So that's the only person that I know personally that was boarded, but I also, there's a sailing channel out there that I've watched where they have an episode where they are boarded by the Coast Guard, And uh, that's a great episode as well. So, no, I've not personally been boarded, but uh, I know people have. So you have one
1: here on how to pass a Coast Guard inspection. Is that basically just the safety gear that they're looking for on the boat?
0: Absolutely. It's the safety gear, but it's also they want to make sure that the deck's are not cluttered. I mean, lots of voyagers, uh, cruisers, you know, have g- gas cans on the deck, or maybe they have bicycles, or maybe they have a dinghy. And if that dinghy's not secured properly, or the gas cans are not secured properly, that'll be inspected. And that that can also result in a warning or a citation.
1: Hmm. I've never heard of that. So if you have water bu- jugs on your boat, what do they consider secured properly? Do you know?
0: Yeah. If they feel it's a manifestly unsafe voyage, which is their judgment, that could be anything from, uh, you know, there's something broken that they feel makes the, the voyage unsafe or there's, uh, you know, things on the deck that they feel is a safety hazard. Uh, then they can arrest you. They can shut that voyage down. They have that discretion. So they're going to look and make sure that that boat is functioning and it's safe. And if it is, then you got nothing to worry about and they'll go on their way. I've never been on a
1: boat. I had my boat up in the northwest for five years, and not once did a Coast Guard person ever come anywhere near me. Didn't seem to show much interest at all. But I think there, I think it's much more prevalent down in Florida and those areas.
0: Absolutely. I would imagine because of the southern waters and, uh, you know, now with homeland security issues, too, there may be more stopping in, you know, in the Long Island Sound, uh, Delaware Bay, but definitely South Florida, the Miami area for sure there's a lot more activity. There's a lot more also local law enforcement on the water too down there.
1: You have a whole bunch of um, episodes of various designs that you reviewed. So you went through a Cape Dory, you went through a Catalina 36, Pearson, a Bristol 40. So you, you looked at a lot of different boats. Did you take your camera down and when you were inspecting the boats and check it out with, with your camera? Is that how you came up with these videos?
0: Absolutely, Took the camera down and filmed what I was doing and, you know, took uh, 30 minutes worth of film and distilled it down to three, four minutes to just get the best. And uh, that's how I created those. But it's not a technical survey of those boats. And in it, I say, listen, you know, I'm not saying this boat, you know, is good or bad. But for me, uh, I'm looking for a boat, number one, that I feel good in. In other words, that when I go down into the boat, I want to stay in there. I don't feel cramped or I don't feel claustrophobic. It it doesn't make me want to leave right away. Uh, And that's not really the most technical way to start evaluating boats. But if it doesn't feel right, if you don't feel comfortable in it, then what's the point just because someone says, oh, this is a technically very excellent boat or this is a blue water boat capable of, you know, crossing an ocean. If you don't even want to be there because it just feels like you're in a a cave, then what's the point of continuing even if it's technically good? And I compare it (laughs) to, you know, If you're a guy dating a a woman, you know, just because somebody else says, oh, you know, that woman does have a technically, you know, a very great personality and she's very smart, high IQ and and I think she's very pretty. So you should like her. Well, of course, as you know, in the real world, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And just like you're going to marry or be fall in love with someone that you marry or fall in love with the same thing with a boat. You really have to love it first. You had there has to be that emotional pull on it. Because you're going to be spending money in that boat. You're going to be spending time in that boat. And the technical stuff is also important. But what good is the technical stuff if you don't even really like the boat?
1: What would you say is the best way to avoid buying a lemon? Because you have a video just on how to avoid buying a lemon sailboat.
0: Well, I think the most important thing is because a professional survey is, can be expensive. It can be anywhere from 20 to $24 a foot to have it professionally surveyed. And also, you also have to pay if it's not in the water, if it's in the water to have it taken out of the water to be surveyed, uh, which is going to be a marina fee. So, you know, it can be a thousand bucks a pop to actually technically survey a boat to see the hidden things, uh, like the surveyors use moisture meters to find out if there's moisture in the deck, which is a very expensive replacement if you've got, you know, decks that are that have moisture in them, too much moisture in them. Um, So, you know, you have to, to, to get, to not get ripped off. You have to learn enough of what to look for first, because if you look at 10 boats, you know, you can't have 10 professional surveys to see if it's any good. You got to kind of know yourself. So I, what I do is the first thing is you got to feel it. Does it feel good when you go down into it? Number two you want to look at the most expensive components of the boat to replace, which are number one. You got to make sure the hull is good as much as much as you can that there's no holes, there's no no, no weak spots, and that's a little harder to determine. But you certainly can, you know, get a little rubber hammer and knock around in the hull a bit to see if it feels sound. The other thing is the the standing rigging, which is the mast and all the stays, that can be also expensive to replace. So you mm-hmm. want to ask, uh, has this running rigging? Uh, has, I mean it has the standing rigging being replaced if it 's a thirty five year old boat and it 's never been replaced you 're going to have a problem because you don 't you don 't want to go out in the ocean and all of a sudden start have things popping out of the you know, out of the fittings. The other area that 's expensive to replace is the engine and diesel engines are very reliable, but they have to be maintained and they 're expensive to replace. Uh, they could be you know seven ten thousand dollars and the, with labor it could be twelve thousand depending on the horsepower. Uh, you know, it can be a third of the price of a used boat just to put a new en- engine in it. So, if those things are fairly good, and you can kind of tell that by the how the engine looks, if it's if it's been cared for, it's a sign of the rest of the boat's been cared for. You want to get a little bit of the history of the boat. Who's the owner? If the owner is someone who's a detail person and who has put a lot of uh, upgrades in that boat, then that's the boat you want to get. If the owner is absent or maybe passed away or doesn't care about the boat and it's been sitting for a couple years, well, unless you're a really well, you know, as a mechanic and as a do-it-yourself person, uh, that boat may have some real dif- problems. So uh, you kind of screen out a lot of boats. That's why you got to look at a lot of boats. And the one that you really think is good, well, you're protected because your offer is a contract and it's also contingent upon your satisfaction and then you buy, then you spend $1,000 to get the boat surveyed professionally.
1: How many boats do you think you took a look at before you found the Moody that you think you might be buying?
0: I think that, I'm sure I looked at dozens of them, dozens of boats. And I tried to look at them in different categories. You know, look at a Pearson, look at a Cape Dory, look at Island Packets, a look at an Ericsson, look at a Pacific Seacraft. Um, you know, try to look at as many boats that are representative uh, as, as possible of the price range that you're looking at, you know, the used boats that are 25 uh, and 30 years old, uh, you know, and, and once you see them after, after several months, you kind of start learning a little bit about it. it. gets easier. Then when you start walking in, you're looking up if it's a, a mast that stepped, uh, if, if it's a mast that stepped not in the keel but on the, on the deck, and you see water stains on the inside of the coach where you're looking up, then you, then you know there's a problem because it, there really shouldn't be water coming through if the, if the mast ends on the, on the deck, as opposed to a keel step mast where the mast goes all the way down through the salon into the keel. That's, so there's always going to be a little water in the bilge because the water kind of comes down to the mast. So the, you, you begin to look for the problems in boats, which really have to do with lack of maintenance, and water gets in through some of the deck hardware and the fittings on the deck, and that comes into the inner part of the deck, and it gets soft, uh, and it's hidden, and that can be almost prohibitively, you know, uh, expensive to repair. Uh, so you kind of get a little sense of what to look for a little more. You can also kind of look under the underbody, and you kind of kind of get a sense of looking at what the cracks look like that have been, f- you know, glossed over, fixed over. So you do get a little more savvy. But still, I always just consider myself an amateur, and I would never buy a boat uh, unless it was professionally served by, surveyed by a professional surveyor.
1: In looking at your boats, were almost all of the people you were dealing with, were they individuals, or did you also deal with brokers?
0: You know, I really prefer dealing with the brokers. Uh, I did deal with some individual owners, but I found that individual owners can be so emotionally attached to their boats that they don't, uh, you know... It's kind of like the same thing when you're buying a house. You know, some people say this is what I want, no matter what, and the the, the real estate agent can say, well, I guess you love your house so much you're going to get to keep it, you know, because you're not going to sell it. It's overpriced. So I enjoyed with the brokers because the brokers help, I think, manage the 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 owners to let them kind of know, yeah, th- this is probably what we should list it for. So I I like the brokers. Plus the bro brokers. Uh, have multiple listings, so you can kind of see see a lot, as opposed to you know driving all day just to see one guy's boat in his backyard. You know, I actually enjoyed the brokers, and I f- and I found some ones that you know that were really good. Uh, you know, I think uh... you know I was fortunate to really find some really great brokers, great sailors, great people, and and uh, I feel good about the brokers that I in- in- interacted with, a good, except maybe one or two.
1: All right. Well, Vinny, I think we've covered a lot, and I think we've given people a good summary of your website, or your YouTube channel, I should say. Is there anything else
0: you'd like to add? No, I just say uh, invite all your viewers to check us out at Sailing Nervous. And now that we actually have the boat this year, is this is season two, and uh, there'll be it'll be interesting to see <laughs> the uh, the follies and the escapades of us newbie sailors trying to figure out how to run a thirty-four foot yacht.
1: All right, thanks, Vinny. Thank you, Joe. You have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe.
0: His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you? Every once in a while, you just gotta say, What the heck? and take some chances. You are so right. You've made me very proud. I
1: was just thinking where we might be ten years from now, you know? Thank you.